0: Right on cue. <laughs> All right, we are going here in Luke chapter twelve. I do just want to take just a moment and I recognize a couple of people here with us today. It's great to have Steve and Peggy Thomas with us. Adam's parents—they have been such faithful partners with us financially and in prayer ever since the founding here of Redeemer. They played a huge part in, uh, of course, Adam's life, my own life, the ministry here. We've prayed very faithfully for Peggy, and we couldn't be more pleased to have you guys here with us, and Dana too, I won't leave you out, but uh, his sister here as well. And then, of course, it is great to have Blaze with us this morning, Uh, Brian and Daniela here with our newest little member, Blaze, about a week and a half old, something like that now, so awesome to have you guys here with us. Last couple of weeks we've looked at Jesus as he has interacted with the Pharisees and the lawyers and as he interacts with them he does so in a way that has created a lot of tension he has a razor sharp accusations and questions that he puts to them going straight to the heart of the Pharisees and the lawyers he's hit on the theme of hypocrisy dealing with revealing to these Pharisees and these lawyers the true heart that lies behind their legalism. He's embarrassed them. He has called them out. He has made them incredibly angry. And tensions are rising and getting higher and higher. Luke often does this. We've seen a few times as we've gone through the gospel is he kind of builds the scene for us and builds the tension of the scene setting for us kind of just how sort of momentous and how much emotion is filling these scenes that he paints for. It's kind of like a movie. If you've if you're familiar with the Jason Bourne movies I'm sure most of you've seen it you know how kind of the you go through about half the movie and the tension sort of builds and then there's that scene with, like, 45 minutes left, and he's on the top of some building spying on the people who are supposed to be spying on him. And he delivers, like, a super cool hard guy line. And the music takes off, and he, you know, like, flips off the building and lands on the ground. And it's on. You know it is on for the rest of the time. Well, that's sort of what we're doing here is we, we get... We keep going, we get to another point, and just the tension keeps building. We've seen it in Luke a few times with his baptism, the momentum of that moment, as then he takes off on his public ministry. We saw it in Luke chapter 9, as Jesus turns his face and sets his jaw, his face, towards Jerusalem. Kind of the last couple months now, heading towards the Jerusalem event, the gospel event, the passion of Christ there in Jerusalem. And he calls this call of discipleship, Will you follow me on the road to Jerusalem? And then we saw last week, once again, as Pastor Adam took a couple weeks to work through that that dinner party Jesus is at with the Pharisees and the lawyers, and it gets super awkward as Jesus goes after them with these indictments and questions, revealing the insincerity of their religious facade. And the tension just keeps rising and rising and rising. And so now we get to the passage that we're at today, and you, you can see kind of how this tension, this, moment, this momentum has been building the end of chapter 11, okay, sorry, in verse 53, it says, "...as he went from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say." This is more than just a ha-ha, got you. This is to catch him in something, to shut him up once and for all, to kill him, whatever it takes to shut up this Jesus. And the tension is rising. It obviously has spread to the crowds. Whenever there's a crowd around Jesus, it always seems like it's kind of tottering on that, ready to burst forth in praise or ready to become a riot to come after him. And you see the same thing here as the beginning of chapter 12 starts. It says, in the meantime... When so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. And he begins to speak to his disciples. It just after word is spreading, the tension is rising, people understand there's something momentous taking place, and there's throngs of crowds coming around and trampling one another to get near to this Jesus, to hear what he has to say. Obviously, his disciples, those closest to him, are, are packed in there as well. And he begins to address his disciples. Jesus understands in this moment, as he continues on his journey to Jerusalem, that it is going to get more difficult and more difficult. The road to the cross is going to get hard. And he turns to his disciples now, and he asks this question. It's a question that we will ask of ourselves this morning. Is how are you going to be a courageous disciple of Christ? How are you going to follow Jesus as a disciple, unafraid and unashamed? They recognize it, he recognizes it. As the tension, as the pressure grows on Jesus, so does it is going to grow as well for those who are closely associated with him. Those who confess him as Christ, those who confess him as the Messiah, recognize his authority. The pressure is going to mount. And so he wants to know, how are you going to be a disciple, a courageous disciple of Christ, unashamed and unafraid? That's a question we want to ask ourselves this morning. How are we going to be a disciple of Christ, unashamed and unafraid? For those who love the Lord, that's what you want. You want to be a disciple who is full of joy and passion, bursting forth with the good news of the gospel. But it doesn't operate that way in our lives a lot of times. A lot of times we're, we're just afraid. We're ashamed in our discipleship of Jesus Christ. When you go to school... As you prepare to go off to college, as you're in your workplace, as, as you interact with friends and family and you parent and you're with your neighbors, how do you live as a disciple of Christ with that, that joy and that genuineness, unashamed and unafraid? Well, hopefully our text this morning will reveal some ways that that can take place in our lives. So, As we work through the text, we'll lift out a few of these uh, things, I think, that the Lord has provided for us to be a disciple unashamed and unafraid. I'll go ahead and tell you from the first two points I'm going to spend a little bit more time on. So if you're getting nervous that we haven't made it very far in the first few minutes, don't worry. We'll go through the last fairly quickly. Point one, a disciple unafraid and unashamed fights the hypocrisy in their heart. A disciple unafraid and unashamed will fight the hypocrisy in their heart. He's just finished talking to the Pharisees, calling them out on their hypocrisy, which for them has shown itself in legalism. You remember, as Pastor Adam told us, it's kind of the two points of legalism there, is that It gives them, as they just create more and more rules and stricter, stricter ways to live and rituals to go through and traditions to follow, It it gives them a way of kind of controlling and manipulating the people under them. And secondly, it kind of creates this Assumption that if I give you all these rules and tell you how to live, then I must be living that way. If I'm super strict on you, then I must be living a super strict spiritual life. And Jesus reveals that's not the case. You're casting burdens on people that you don't bear yourselves. And he reveals the insincerity of their own heart and their own lack of belief in Jesus Christ, their own understanding of what the prophets of old have said. And so he begins here in verse 2. He says, Beware, as he speaks to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware, he warns them, the leaven of the Pharisees, leaven, that, that small element that when it's combined with other things, spreads and has its impact and starts to and starts to influence and, and corrupt whatever is around it. Leaven is used. Typically in a negative way in Scripture, it's used once to describe the kingdom of God in a positive way as the kingdom will go forward and be unstoppable. But typically it speaks in terms of a negative way whether it's hypocrisy or sin or whatever it is and it it is the corrupting nature of it that just a little bit gets in and it corrupts the whole person and then it, it goes beyond and it starts to corrupt and it spreads to others. And he's saying hypocrisy works this way in your life. You think that you can you know, kind of live two lives and be okay with it, but it's going to spread and corrupt. I want to make one point about hypocrisy here that I think sometimes we get a little confused with. First of all, as Pastor Adam mentioned a couple weeks ago, there's a touch of hypocrisy in all of us. We typically judge ourselves very kindly with it and judge others really harshly when it comes to hypocrisy. Often a a charge leveled at the church is one of hypocrisy, and sometimes, often that is the case, but it's not always. Hypocrisy is not the same thing as just having sin present in your heart. The church doesn't claim, we don't gather together and claim to be a sinless people. That we're gathered together as people who don't need grace anymore, who don't need God anymore. That's not our claim. That's why every Sunday we start our worship, our approach to God corporately with the time of corporate confession. To remind ourselves, to acknowledge in front of everyone that moment by moment we need grace. We have sinned. We have fallen short. We are coming unto Christ. The church is full of sinners so to say, like, you sin, that makes you a hypocrite, that, that's, that's misunderstanding hypocrisy because no one's claiming to be perfect. Hypocrisy is treasuring, intentionally going after, knowingly, consciously storing up sin in your heart and your life, and then purposefully hiding it behind a cloak of spirituality or religiosity of some sort. So it is that conscious pursuing sin, realizing it's sin, deciding you want to treasure it anyways. In the inside, that's what I pursue. As the illustration last week, then the cup is all clean and shiny looking on the outside, but inside it's filthy. That's hypocrisy. That's the charge. And the danger is that eventually with that hypocrisy is you start to believe the lie yourself. You start to believe it. You think you can somehow keep these separate. You think, whatever those areas are, you think you can kind of have that flirty relationship at work that you know is not appropriate. But, you know, I can kind of keep that going, but I'll, I'll hide it behind a totally different cloak of spirituality when I'm outside. I, I just separate it and I can handle it. So many people, so many men struggle with pornography. And it's that same thing, you kind of start to, you know, when you first see it, you feel this is awful, this is gross, and you feel dirty and sinful doing it, and then it becomes just normal and suddenly you don't feel bad about it. And you start to think, I can keep the two, two separate, and you start to believe the hypocrisy yourself, that you give yourself to this, you treasure it in your heart, but then you show up over here and you do everything you can to create a different facade, Understand me, I'm not saying every sin that you commit, you have to go telling everybody all about it all the time. That's not the point. But it's that purposely creating both of these. That you can cheat in school, and, and, and you can be dishonest with your finances. And again, you feel terrible about it the first time, and then it gets easier and easier and easier. And you believe the lie yourself and then you've gone down this road of pornography or what it is and you don't realize you're corrupting your view of marriage you're corrupting your view of beauty and the image of god You're corrupting your view of the gospel and how you approach God. You don't realize that you are feeding and you are fueling and you are participating in such evils as sex trafficking and you're promoting it with your indulgence and you think it's harmless, I, I've, I've kept it separate. And hypocrisy spreads and it corrupts and then it starts spreading to others. And here's the reason why, is because hypocrisy is ultimately idolatry. It's you have a competing treasure and you make the decision, this sin is more satisfying, is going to take my attention before Jesus Christ and the claims of the gospel. And publicly, your treasure is the Lord. And privately, your treasure is XYZ, whatever. And it's idolatry. It becomes a competing treasure, a competing a competing idol in your heart. But look what he goes on to say about this hypocrisy in verses 2 and 3. He says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. In other words, hypocrisy is going to fail. It is guaranteed to fail what you think it's going to accomplish. That is to keep your sin hidden and to escape judgment, whether it's right now or whether it's in the future. It's guaranteed to fail. It's not going to accomplish what you think it's going to. You think as a we think when we have these hypocrisies in our lives, this is how I'm going to deal with my sin. I'm only going to treasure it privately and not publicly. He's saying, No, that never works. It's going to be revealed. We could go, whether now or the final judgment seat, I'm not going to take the time. We could go through story after story after story. You know people. You probably know a pastor, someone who you've been connected with, who has been caught in some sort of sin and it's all been exposed. I have a whole list of friends and teachers and people who that has taken place in their lives where... They've dealt with their sin by this hypocrisy, by by keeping it hidden, tucked away, and eventually it's exposed. The thing is, is in this text, when it tells you the warnings, the the dangers, the reality of hypocrisy, just knowing that about hypocrisy doesn't help you overcome it. You can't moralistically now, oh, that's a good warning. Maybe it'll help you overcome it for a day or a week or something. But ultimately, it's, it's not going to help you overcome it in your own strength just because you realize the outcome's bad. You already know that. You know the truth of Scripture. You've seen how it's taken place in other people's lives. And yet, in your heart, you continue to pursue it. Again, in the seminary we were at, they had an announcement that you knew. that their, their Internet was... Real secure. They had all kinds of guards on it. Anywhere you went on the Internet, it logged it and sent it to somebody else. Everyone knew that. And every year someone gets in trouble for going to places on the Internet, they shouldn't. Just knowing the consequences of it doesn't stop. There's a message, Thomas Chalmers, from a while back called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of of a new affection. I'll read just kind of an extended excerpt of it here. It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. At least it is very seldom that this is done by the instrumentality of reasoning or by the force of mental determination. The heart's desire for an ultimate object can be conquered, but its desire to have some... Object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. Therefore, it is not enough to hold out to God's people the mirror of their own imperfections. Like here, just to simply give you that verse and that's it. It's not simply enough for us to just show you the mirror of your own imperfections. It is not enough to come forth with a demonstration of the offensive and fleeting characters of their enjoyments. I can convince you sin is gross right now, but tomorrow it's not going to seem gross anymore. It does no good even to speak to their consciences of their follies. Rather, make every legitimate method of finding access to their hearts for the love of Him who is greater than the world. not just you moralistically deciding i'm not going to be a hypocrite anymore it is by the spirit through the ordinary means of grace that the lord has set out for us the church gathered prayer the preached word giving yourself to the word coming to the table proclaiming feasting on christ at the table as a means of fighting sin in your life Giving those selves to the ordinary means that then by the spirit, you can fight and put to death the deeds of the flesh. As the gospel grows, it becomes more beautiful. To know God is to love God. To love God is to obey God. Hypocrisy says, "Keep this rule, keep this rule, keep this rule. Just hear the consequences: Do this, do this, do this, and it fails to deliver on its promises. The gospel presents something that's so much more beautiful, that's so much more satisfying. And it's giving yourselves to those ordinary means of grace, primarily His Word, and table, that teach us, that help us to fight hypocrisy in our hearts. <clears throat> As we continue, then, a disciple unafraid and unashamed fears the Lord. First, he fights hypocrisy in his heart. Secondly, he fears the Lord. That is to live in such a way that you are not ruled by the fear of man. Again, replacing the fear of man with the fear of God, replacing the fear of man with something greater. That is the fear of God conquers all other fears. Fearing something greater helps conquer you, conquer your fear of something smaller. Look at the text, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. You know, that sounds pretty bad. They can kill you. But he says, don't fear them. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. <clears throat> Fear something greater will get rid of the fear of something smaller. Hell is to be more feared than being teased by a classmate. When you put in these terms, it seems so obvious, but day to day we live with much more fear of man than fear of God quite often. When you think about it, you're more worried about pleasing that person at work that you can barely stand then you are pleasing your Creator and your Savior God. That shows where your fear lies, where your fear really rests. There's going to be natural fear of man, natural fear of abandonment and physical pain and death. But that can be conquered with a greater fear that is a fear of God. John Hooper was an English reformer. I don't know if he's any relation to the Hoopers in our midst here or not but John Hooper was a English reformer he was sentenced to die for preaching the gospel for preaching justification by faith alone so they brought him before the council and they offered him basically if he would privately recant then they would kill him but they would do it privately and they would do it mercifully quickly let it be done And it seems to be the case, as you read some of these stories of of these martyrs, is they give you the night, they give you the weekend to think about it. Those are some sleepless nights, I'm sure. And so they give him the night to think about it. His other choice is public burning by fire, killing by being burned at the stake. Painful, horrendous public death. They come and they ask him his final response, what is it going to be? And it's recorded his answer. Life is sweet. And death is bitter, but eternal life is far sweeter, and eternal death is more bitter still. John Knox had said the final words of the reformer from Scotland who took on all kinds of people in power as he was laid to rest. He said the final words before he was laid to rest were this, here is one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. Our fear of man, again, isn't just going to be overcome by willpower. It's going to be overcome as it's replaced with the fear of God. <clears throat> I know this message is so unpopular today in evangelical circles. The fear of God. We've, we've painted a picture of a God who is so easy to deal with, who is so easy on the sensitivities, that he would never, there's no one who should ever fear him. He's nothing but love. He wants you to be happy. How would you fear a God like that? Here's just a couple quotes from people that have come out recently. I I don't know if you're familiar, Michael Gunger is. He's a Christian artist, Christian singer. He's been recognized, I think he won a double war a while back, as kind of a, a popular Christian singer. He recently, in the last couple of weeks, as he talked about how he wrote, he says, I would love to hear more artists that sing to God, and fewer who include a father murdering a son in that endeavor. That God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, it's horrific. In my perspective, it is the most evil view to have of God. I don't know if you guys have seen the shack have you seen that movie that is coming out william paul young wrote a book about 10 years ago called the shack um it's made, it's recently been made into a movie it's sold over 20 million copies the book has it's kind of like the new passion of the christ if you remember that where churches are renting out theaters and showing the movie it's becoming this kind of big thing and it's kind of his attempt to give um like a modern perspective on why God would allow suffering and how you're to deal with it as a Christian. He said this as he was being interviewed about the, the book, as the movie here is being released. He said, who even originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser who in divine wisdom created a means to torture human beings in the most painful and abhorrent manner. Frankly, it is often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge or grant credibility to in any sense. And, he, and rightly so. It is better to have no God at all than this one. These aren't like out there ideas. This is kind of mainstream singers, mainstream popular writers, evangelical circles. I, I mean, there's churches I know that are running out to show this movie and kind of push this idea they want you to follow Jesus and they talk about being a follower of Jesus but they would never have room for a Jesus who stands before you and says don't fear man, fear my father who can not only kill you but can send you to hell we don't have a fear of God because we've made him so easy on the, on the sensitivities of man that we've taken off any reason to fear him he's, just, he's what we want him to be he's our genie that makes us happy and you realize when I'm saying fear of God, if you have in your mind maybe <clears throat> the exact wrong picture is to think of a, an alcoholic father who is, he is so unpredictable and abusive and you don't know who am I going to get. Is he going to love me today or is he going to go off on me? Is he going to abuse me? How... That's not the fear we're talking about, some unpredictable, outraged father. We're talking about a fear of God that recognizes his altogether power and authority, that he is creator, that he has the right to claim on your life complete kingship and lordship. And yet at the same time, he is your intimate father, the one who draws you near, who loves you, who cares cares for you, who gave his son for you whose presence with you is the only reason that you can have hope in life. It's a fear of God that is born out of love, that has more concern for God's reputation than anything else, that takes more seriously knowing Him and obeying Him than knowing and obeying other things. When you come to a situation, it's how do I please my Heavenly Father, not who cares, how do I make sure I get along in this situation, and we live a life that is so kind of camouflaged that, yes, the kingdom of God is beautiful, and it means a lot to us, but, you know, by all means, don't let anyone know I belong to it. Let's just fade into the domain of darkness as much as possible, never say anything, never be a witness, never... And we say it can be because it's, we're sensitive to other people, whatever. Often it's motivated by fear of man over fear of God. We don't live unafraid and unashamed. Our third point, a disciple unafraid and unashamed rests in God's sovereign care. And here's where the two, fear of God and resting in his sovereign care, back up against one another. <clears throat> As Luke, I'll start back in verse 5, And read down through verse 7. It says, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But then he goes on, And not five sparrows are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. You see the logic. If you can buy you know, five sparrows for simple two pennies, that's not that much value. And God cares about each of them. How much more is He going to care about the pinnacle of His creation? Those made in His own image. Those for whom He gave His Son to redeem, to accomplish. For those who believe, for those elect, He's given His Son and He's drawn them near. and He's made them His own, His own children as we sang this morning. And that's that dual nature to worship that we try to hammer into your heads that we need to realize as we walk the Christian life. This fear of God that He is altogether different. He is holy. He is perfect. He is unapproachable. And yet at the same time, He is our intimate, caring Father who knows us better than we know ourselves. As we quoted from Psalm 139 a couple weeks ago in our corporate psalm, that He formed us in our mother's womb he goes before us. He goes behind us. He knows our weaknesses. And it doesn't move him to discuss Psalm 103, but it moves him to have pity. He knows that we are but dust. And he has pity as a, a father pities his child, as a little baby. He caresses and cares for us perfectly. We won't serve God unafraid and unashamed. <clears throat> When we get hung up on one without the other. If he's only this kind of loving, tender father who would never go against our wishes or if he is just one to be feared and that's it. But when you realize this full orb, God, that he is all of these and in his simplicity he is all of these at once. Then you are moved to find strength and to find courage to be a disciple of Christ unafraid and unashamed. He cares for us. He is sovereign. He knows us. And He cares for us. He knows each detail there. As it says, He knows the number of hairs on our head. If He knows that, and He cares about it, then certainly He knows us. And so, we are not to fear, because we are more valued than these. We overcome our fear of man by fearing God. And yet we see we don't fear His presence, we take comfort and hope in it because we fear Him rightly. Fourth, a disciple unafraid and unashamed believes that Christ will not forsake His own. We read that in Romans 8 this morning. Adam Crombush led us in that in our worship. Verse 8 says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. We see that Jesus Christ, if we confess him as our Lord and Savior now, the hope is as we stand and confess him, knowing that for all eternity he will stand and acknowledge us, he will be our advocate, our defender, our righteousness. We need that hope right now, that as we stand, as we try to follow him courageously and unashamed, in the midst of an age that is passing away, domain of darkness that doesn't want that, that is an enemy to the church, As we try to follow Christ obediently and wisely in that path, we need to know He stands with us now. But infinitely more we need to know on that final day of judgment, He is going to acknowledge us and stand with us then. And that is the promise. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will stand as your advocate, defender, your Savior, your righteousness in that final judgment, the final moments. It should also be a challenge to us, if we fail to confess Christ now, this isn't like a work, one equals the other. If I confess Christ, I've earned my way. You know, If I'm bold in my witness, then I've earned my way to heaven. But it does say for the one who confesses Christ now, Christ will confess him in the age to come. If you are totally afraid and ashamed and always hide behind never confessing Christ, there's not a lot of confidence then in your Confession. Here, Jesus is making an ultimate claim in this passage as well. He's making the ultimate claim that he alone is the one who has to be confessed. It is Jesus Christ, not just God and then however we want to think we get to God, but it is Jesus Christ and him alone that needs to be confessed. It's his accomplishments alone that make our way to salvation, that serve then for him to be our advocate and our righteousness and our mediator. It's confessing Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate claim that is made here. And then I won't spend a lot of time on it, but he gets into the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. That can be a a bit confusing. I know that can be scary for people. Typically, the truth goes like this. If you're scared you committed it, you didn't. (laughs) The one who wants to make sure, like, oh, did I perhaps maybe do it? You know, you probably didn't. But what's he talking about here? Um, if you go to Matthew 12 and you go to Mark 3, I think this is one of the questions on your CLG sheet, so you can get into it a little more. But those passages give the same statement, and those that gives a little more context surrounding it to help us, that when Jesus makes this statement about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it takes place right after Jesus Christ has performed some sort of miracle, some sort of of demonstration of kingdom power before the people and it is obvious that is what is taking place but then those who are standing by the pharisees the lawyers whoever it is that are standing by see it and deny deny the testimony of the holy spirit that this is the work of god taking place and not only do they deny it but they attribute it to evil or to satan or to darkness we saw that earlier i think in chapter 11 10 or 11 i can't remember now <clears throat> when Jesus is casts out the demons, and they ask him if they do it, and if he's doing it in the power of Beelzebub, And it doesn't even make sense that they would say that. So, what's the difference then? Then, if you deny the Son of Man, you're okay, or well, you're not okay, but you still have a chance of forgiveness. If you deny the Holy Spirit, you got no chance. I, I think what it's saying is, you know, hearing the gospel, hearing the presentation of Christ, and someone denies it. It's not like they denied it once. That's the end for them. We see that in Scripture. You see that with the testimony of Saul. I mean, he was a persecutor of the church, took a stand against this Christ, and then his eyes were opened, and he became the great missionary of the church. You, you see it with the thief on the cross. He's mocking God along with everybody else, mocking Jesus Christ as he hangs on the cross with everyone else. And at the end, confesses, "This is the Son of God." He's promised a spot in paradise. So you see these conversions. It's not a matter of they didn't get it the first time, they've got no chance. Denying the Holy Spirit takes it to a a different level where the Spirit is at work testifying of it. It becomes obvious that this is the Lord's work and they stand up in denial and refusal and say this isn't the Lord's work. In fact, it is the work of evil itself. Listen to this definition by um, Herman Bavink, a, a theologian. He says... He describes the unpardonable sin this way, a sin against the gospel in its clearest revelation, not in doubting or simply denying truth, but denial, but a denial that goes against the conviction of the intellect, against the enlightenment of conscience. In a conscious, willful, and intentional imputation to the influence and working of Satan, that which is clearly recognized as God's work. It is in a willful declaration that the Holy Ghost is actually the spirit of the abyss, that truth is a lie, and that Christ is evil itself. In the end, it is the ultimate, it is the end game, it is the end of the road for the one who refuses to confess Christ, the one who denies Christ. That's kind of the ultimate end. For that one who takes that sort of hardened stance, the... Scripture says they won't be forgiven. But for us, we find our hope, we find our courage when we believe that Christ indeed will not forsake us. Even in your failure, we know even Christ's disciple, Peter, he forsook Jesus Christ three times in Christ's most critical hour. And he received forgiveness. It's not perfect discipleship. It's not following Christ unerringly. But it's one who treasures Christ and who doesn't decide to deal with their idolatry by hypocrisy, by just keeping the treasure of sin and hiding it, but the one who confesses it and fills it with a new passion and a new treasure, namely Jesus Christ himself. And finally, our last point here, a disciple unafraid and unashamed is taught by the Holy Spirit. And that is, it's not that Jesus on our own expects us in our own intellect, and our own strength to walk perfectly before him, but the Holy Spirit is with us, guiding us, giving us the word to say that in the most critical hour of our discipleship, the Holy Spirit, the new covenant, promised Holy Spirit ministers to us, writes the word upon our heart, and teaches us. Just as he ministered to Jesus Christ in the wilderness, the same ministry to us in our moment of temptation, our moment of trial, when when we aren't feeling more than conquerors, when we're shaky and weak, the Spirit ministers to us. I've heard some people use this as an excuse, pastors, not to prepare, because in the hour, the Spirit will give you a word to say. Pastor Adam and I joked through our seminary experience, you always knew when a chapel speaker or a pastor got up to speak to you, if he started it by saying that, one, he just wanted this to be a family talk, or two, he was going to speak to you from the heart, that that was code for, I did not prepare, um, and so you knew you were in for, I don't know, just some stories or something. <clears throat> That's not what being, say, being said here. We're told to be ready to give an answer, to give a defense, to give ourselves to the word. But so often we dismiss the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, both in the putting to death the deeds of the flesh and teaching God's word to us and writing its truths upon our heart. Men may forsake us in our worst moment, but Christ runs to us in that moment. In the most critical hour, he stands at our defense. The Holy Spirit gives us the words to stay. God cares for us, surrounds us with his presence. The Trinity is our strength. we all want that. If you love the Lord, you want to be a disciple of Christ who follows unashamed and unafraid. You don't want to be that timid, weak, scared, hiding Christian. Yet we often find ourselves in that place in life. There's not real joy. There's not real passion. There's not a treasuring of Jesus Christ. Instead, it's just kind of a and then we see someone who's living that life unafraid and unashamed, and we think, man, that's what I want. As we celebrate the 500 year of the Reformation, those Reformers, they were men. They feared man at times. They were scared at times. They battled the same things. But you read some of their last lines that they gave, and it blows away Jason Bourne's hard guy lines. <laughs> As they take that stand for Christ, driven on that they fear God more than they fear man, and they treasure him way more than they treasure man, and they recognize the Trinity ministering to them in their greatest hour of need. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it can strengthen us in our discipleship of you. We praise you for it, Lord. Might you take it and write its truths upon our hearts. Might your spirit use it to help us overcome and fight sin. Might you be pleased with how we hear your word this morning? Just a moment, the worship team is going to come and lead us in a quarter-